This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash JavaScript Jabber. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Corey House. Hello from sunny Kansas City. AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from Provo, Utah. Amy Knight. Hello from Nashville, and I'm going to say happy Valentine's Day to all the uh, female developers out there. It'll be belated Valentine's Day by the time they get this, but... Gal- nonetheless we're, re- we're recording it on Valentine's day so i'm like yes i don't think i've ever heard <laughs> of that uh so it's like it's just to celebrate your female friends okay so. <laughs> it's from a tv show <laughs> that's why i've never but, heard of it like girl power thing <laughs> okay anyways carry on nope it's all good just had to get some clarification I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Everyone else said where they're calling in from. I'm in Lehigh, Utah. We also have a few special guests here. We have uh, Benjamin Coe. Hey, how's it going? We also have Aaron Abramov. Hello. And Isaac Schluter. Hello. We yeah. three are all in the NPME offices in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Very cool. I didn't realize that the offices were in Oakland. I was in Oakland last week. I would have stopped by. See, now I'm hurt. Well, there you go. That's what I do. I just hurt people's feelings. Breaking um, heart. That's right. On Valentine's Day, no less. So, um, uh, Carol. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so uh, we're talking about testing, test coverage and testing tools. And you all have kind of a different perspective having worked on different tools. So do you each want to just chime in and talk about uh, what you've contributed to the community in that way, and then we can talk about how to think about this stuff and make Amy really mad. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll jump in first because it's kind of where the story starts. Uh, several years ago when NPM was just starting, uh, we didn't really have a clear picture of how we were going to test NPM itself, uh, which used Isaac's tap library and kind of part of how it worked was that it would spawn a ton of subprocesses to, to run the tests. And so kind of we, Isaac and I started doodling on this library called NYC, which is a test coverage library that uh, it basically can handle a subprocess being spawned, uh, capture the output from that subprocess, and give you test coverage on a library like NPM itself to start being able to do test coverage for NPM. At the time, we pulled in this library called Istanbul, which was kind of the incumbent popular library for doing test coverage. And uh, over the years, kind of Istanbul needed more maintainers, and I've gradually become one of the core maintainers to Istanbul as well. Which is so, so I kind of split my time between this 
NYC tool, which I originally was working on with Isaac and Michael Rogers. And then I, I do a lot of work on the Istanbul project now, which is one of the popular frameworks for doing test coverage in JavaScript. So that's mainly where I am interested in the area. Yeah, as far as uh, test coverage, I wrote TAP quite a while ago, and I've rewritten it a few times since. Um, it's a test anything protocol implementation for JavaScript uh, Node, and it it keeps tests isolated by running them in child in separate processes, but that made it hard to use Istanbul. Um, and so yeah, I worked with Ben, and, and I did a lot of the um, incredibly fiddly uh, low level rocket surgery around the child process uh, module in Node. Um, basically like monkey patch the um, the spawn method on the child process class so that once something is covered, it will continue to always be covered no matter how many child processes it ends up spawning. It will always kind of like reattach itself. Um, the problem with this symbol is it worked great for things that are um, not doing any child process work, which for things created by Yahoo, I want to say, it came out of Yahoo, yeah. Yahoo. Um, and for their purposes, they were only testing front-end libraries, which don't spawn anything, so it was fine. Um, but to use that with with most Node programs, that became kind of a hassle. So NYC is uh, NYC itself is pretty minimal. There's actually not that much to it. It's kind of just like the the UX layer, um, and then the, the the really wild stuff happens in either Istanbul or in these other like things like spawn wrap and foreground child that you. A lot of really awful hacks. Yeah, and then I, I pulled that into uh, pulled NYC into TAP and started getting everything that I managed to 100% coverage. And I've, I've, I am very become very dogmatic about that coverage. Awesome. So I work on uh, this framework called Jest. Uh, I work on a lot of coverage features in there. So when I joined Facebook a couple of years ago, so the problems with it was the scale. Um, and under the hood, we use Istanbul, but uh, there was a lot of things that we had to take care of, like how do you run this on thousands and thousands of files and do things like this, and how do we capture transformation? So I think we ended up re-implementing a lot of features that NYC already supports, but we kind of did it in our own way. Um, but yeah, so right now we have um, a lot of kind of like configuration, pre-configured things that we offer uh, with Jess. So all it takes is just install just and run it with hyphen hyphen coverage flag and it kind of just works. But yeah, all the coverage and transformation functionality actually comes from Istanbul. Yeah, and I was, I was just going on to say that this was the major motivation, I think, for, for all three of the libraries was to try to make it kind of batteries included that you would just, without having to set a ton of configuration options, you'd, you'd be able to start collecting code coverage. And the hope being that more people would use this as part of their testing, uh, their approach to testing, if it was just a lot easier to do out of, out, out of the package. That makes sense. Now, one thing that I've always wondered about and, and kind of struggled with with test coverage is that um, a lot of times with test coverage, you wind up getting some false positives. So essentially, um, at least the test coverage tools that I've used, what they do is they kind of measure how much of the code was run when you run your test suite. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that something was tested or tested right. And yeah, anyway, I'm wondering how, how you approach something like that. Yeah, so I have, I think you got to think of this like in a, almost in like a framework of um, harm reduction 
rather than perfect or imperfect. Um, if you have 100% coverage of all branches, all lines, all functions in your, in your code base, that doesn't mean that you've tested every possible condition and, or every interaction between two functions or between two different uh, possible variable settings or, or whatever. Um, all it means is that you've run all of the code. Now, if you haven't run all the code, that tells you something interesting. Like, you, you definitely haven't tested that because the code didn't run. If you have run all the code, it doesn't mean that you have tested everything in every possible condition. It just means that you've run all the code. So at least you know you, you checked one thing off your list of multiple possible things. But there are still cases like uh, you know, like I said, you're you're testing if your first variable is more than ten, then you're testing if your second variable is more than ten, but you didn't test if they both were, or if neither of them were, right? So um, yeah, I mean. To that end, you kind of just have to be good at like making software and thinking about it and writing tests. Like, there's no, there's no magic bullet that takes you out of having that responsibility, but having coverage definitely makes it, you know, easier. Yeah, and I, I, uh, I do think if you start with coverage early on and and are have it in mind and even have it enforced as part of your, you know, from for myself for my open source projects. I'll require a certain threshold of test coverage for someone to land a, a new patch. If you're enforcing that and you're thinking about it early on, you definitely, I feel, encourage testing practices that uh, you know don't test in a superficial way, but do keep good coverage. Because I think the real problem is, uh, I mean, the real problem, I think, more so than test coverage encouraging bad tests is just learning to write good tests, like Isaac says, um, that don't test just superficial behavior. And if you're writing tests that, if you have a public API for your library and you're writing tests for that public API, actually the odds are you have pretty good test coverage. Like the odds are you probably have, you know, 90% plus test coverage if you're exercising that whole uh, public API because you're going to be touching the private methods that it relies on. Um, so, so, you know, the test coverage isn't about writing this little finicky test for 50 lines into private methods in your code base. It's, it's really about making sure you test every state that the public API could get into. And, and that's definitely how I tend to approach stuff. I really appreciate you guys calling this out. Um, you know, I've like, talked to a lot of newer developers who are like, you know, wondering if they should get into testing. And, you know, um, I see like a bad habit that I feel like a lot of, at least I see it amongst new developers. I don't know, maybe it goes even um, people that are more advanced, but um like kind of just writing your tests, running the coverage at the exact same time. And I think the advice that I like to give is like you guys are saying to think through the test that you're writing first um, and then like maybe go back through and run the coverage and make sure like, you know, the automation of that is double checking, you know, that you've thought through everything, but don't just like mindlessly run the coverage without thinking about what you're actually writing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny that it, it strikes me as weird when you talk about uh, developers getting into testing because I, I think of like I don't I don't know how you are writing software without doing that like yes yes well I mean even if, well, even if it's just like a shell script <laughs> and make sure it returns something like did you run this ever and if you did why not put the running of it in a program and then that's your you know that's your test yeah I I mean We'll get into. So it. I can. As, as, as Chuck said, like <laughs> I, I am a strong proponent of testing. Um, and 
but unfortunately not everyone is. So, And to give the other side there, I think that's an interesting point. And I can totally appreciate why you guys would have that mindset. But I think about how often I've been on teams where uh, there were so many barriers against testing in the first place where you inherit a project that is not written in a way that's testable, where the company doesn't even have a test framework selected, where your coworkers aren't familiar with it. And it can feel like you're swimming upstream to even write the first test. Uh, and in fact, you can also end up under a manager who doesn't believe in it. And if they find out about it, can say, hey, we'll just manual test. So there, there's all sorts of reasons that I sympathize with uh, people who uh, aren't testing because the environment that they're in is actively uh, fighting them over it. So I, I think from, from my experience, I mean, I go to conferences all the time and I ask people, hey, how many in here believe that automated testing is important? And you'll see almost everyone raise their hand. And then I say, okay, how many of you uh, developers uh, actually are consistently testing, and I see consistently well under half of the room is doing so. And I think that's some of the reasons why. Um, so I I sympathize. I don't I don't I hate for people to feel uh, like oh I'm not a professional because I'm not doing it because I remember there were some jobs that I was in that I was going man if I was going to write automated tests I'd really have to fight hard to get this going. And early in my career I still didn't understand what I was missing either. Yeah, I, oh, I, oh yeah, for for yeah. sure. Like some, I just believe, like I I will try my best to find a company to work for that values that. But yeah, we're not always that fortunate. I think it's confession that, time here because uh, I've been working on this. <laughs> no, I've been working on this SaaS product, right? Well, I, I eventually I think intend to release it as a SaaS, but you know, it's to manage the podcasts and the sponsorships and stuff like that. And I was in a hurry to get it out, and so. I just wrote the code. I kind of spiked the whole thing, which is uh, sort of the the term for writing it without tests. And I still haven't gotten around. I, I It's now growing into kind of a large-ish code base. And I still haven't gotten around to um, writing the test for it. And I think a lot of times we get into that place where we're moving quickly and we're trying to get stuff done. And all of a sudden we realize, you know what? I don't have any tests on this. Or... Um, you know what, I, I need to keep my momentum up. And you can for the short term on smaller projects, but eventually the, you're going to have to pay the piper because eventually it's going to become so complex that the only way to keep all of it straight is the test. And so we're not, we're not saying, hey, you're doing it wrong if you're not doing tests. What we're saying is, is that eventually you're going to wind up paying for it. It's, it's definitely not my intention to, uh, to test train many new, de new developers, but uh, if you're listening to this and this is you and this, you're relating with this situation, um, maybe polish up your resume because not all places are like that. And I was going to say, too, for, for me, as a maintainer of some fairly large open source projects, like it, it just it really helps inversely. It really helps new developers onboard and contribute to these open source projects if there's a clear framework for them to Tribute within, like, oh, I see I've written this new feature. Oh, I just need to write some tests for it. And if I can see the test coverage go up, I know I've appropriately contributed. It, it just provides, yeah, it provides guardrails for newer developers to contribute to open source. So it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, I find it much harder to dive into a code base with no tests as a new developer because there's just not many guidelines about how I contribute to it. Definitely that. And you can, you know, use the test to understand the system as it should be behaving like in a larger scale. 
I would also Actually, add that you can be confident moving forward because if there are tests there, that means that somebody has said, I assume that all this stuff is going to work this way. And so if I get in and start messing with stuff, if the tests all pass, I didn't break anything that somebody codified a, an assumption around. And so I can just go in and bang on stuff and try and break it and see where it breaks and see where things fall apart and really get a good handle on that stuff. I also sympathize thinking about uh, not that long ago, front end code that I was writing that was uh, jQuery uh, and was very difficult to code because of how, or very difficult to test because of how tight it was to the DOM. Uh, and the world today has gotten much, much easier. I think about, you know, today in React, for instance, how uh, modern frameworks, React, Angular, Vue, all of them are much more friendly to automated testing than the days of jQuery. So some of those that are, are stuck on older libraries and tools um, have a tougher time picking this up as well. So I do want to say like one final thing about this, then I'll probably try to be quiet for a little while. So our conversation has been like a little binary. Like we've only talked about like two different cases, like the cases where like people want to test, but not necessarily like, you know, everyone in the company is buying in. But the other scenario that I also see that's outside of that is I see a lot of developers really excited about the JavaScript ecosystem and all the new stuff to come out and play with. And, you know, they get in a company and, they kind of have this decision to make, you know, like maybe, you know, management has given me X number of hours to, you know, um, either like X number of hours at my discretion. And so with those, with those hours, do I spend my time, you know, writing tests if they're not there and making, you know, the software better, um, easier to work in stuff like that? Or do I spend this time like playing with a new library? And I think, unfortunately, I've seen, uh, a lot of developers go with the latter option and then, you know, the software suffers because of it. I don't think it's actually that bad. Um, <laughs> times, uh, for example, I remember I had a five hour flight from San Francisco to Atlanta and I had like this five hours on the plane and I thought, what if I just hack on some new library that I wanted to hack on for a while? And I kind of had a choice whether like I'm either writing the whole thing without tests and I'm just making it work in five hours that I have, or I start from writing tests and I'll probably not going to finish it in five hours. And I'm probably not going to be that excited about this tomorrow. And I'm probably not going to finish it ever. So we can, we can agree that TDD is a buzzkill, right? Like we yeah. can agree that that's not <laughs> Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So well, it can be. Yeah. Right. <laughs> finished it in five hours and I was excited and I actually got the MVP done, and I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. It's kind of like, like I'm working on a, actually a new test coverage tool, and I will admit that I started by writing no tests for it. Because <laughs> it's, yeah, it is a buzzkill, and you want to see it working initially. But I do very early on usually go back and start to try to figure out my strategy for testing if I know it's going to exist for longer than two hours. I, I think so. I think an important point. Like there's, there's a spectrum, there's this like continuum between. Um, you know, I'm writing this thing and I'm going to throw it away. It's like, I, I just want to like download a bunch of files from Dropbox and I don't want to have to go through and click, 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 click. So I wrote a little node script that's going to like pull from their API. And like, when I have my file, I'm going to throw this script away and never see it again. I'm not going to write tests for that. Like, this doesn't even make any sense. Um, and like on the far end of the spectrum, there's like, oh, this is a critical part of the infrastructure that like my company 
depends on, and millions of developers will have a terrible time if it fails even a tiny bit. Um, okay, that should probably have a lot of tests. And like in the continuum there, there's like spikes and you know, I'm try I don't know how this thing is gonna work. Let me write a little like proof of concept, like just spiky one, you know, one module program and see if it works. And then, you know, I'm I will take parts of it out and split it out and organize it later. But like there's no point writing test for it ahead of time in that case because you don't know what you're testing yet. And I think most of the products that we kind of work on are this kind of exploration phase where you don't even know. It's not like a one file script. It's actually a product where you don't know if it's going to take off and become a big product and critical part of your infrastructure or architecture, or it might just die. So yeah. sometimes you just write whatever you want. You don't focus on tests. And if it becomes that product that is really critical, you kind of have to at some point stop and think about how am I going to prevent bugs from happening? How am I going to improve the code quality? You only need tests for code that you need to work. <laughs> and that sounds, sounds like that sounds like a flip. Like, oh, you know, only brush the teeth you want to keep. But like, actually, you don't need most code to work. You just write it. And you're going to throw it away or rewrite it. So, fine. Sorry, failing program. Uh, throw it away in the garbage. I mean, it's also uh, you only need tests if testing it manually is sufficiently painful to justify the time spent on those tests. So I think about the example of uh, if the application is so trivial that I can test it manually, or if it's something that is so short term, if it's something for a trade show next week, uh, spending time on automated tests may not make a whole lot of sense because I probably won't get enough value out of it before we throw it in the trash. So there is value, but it's very short term value. I think that... It depends a lot on how well-known. I mean, I think that's what everybody's kind of been saying is how well-known what you're doing already is. If you're writing something for the first time, you're exploring, you want to write tests to the extent that, that a particular function does what you think it needs to do for a couple of use cases. Um, I think that TDD works really great for katas, homework assignments, for waterfall projects where you know, all the specifications have already been made and that, I mean, kind of the general feel that what's been said is absolutely accurate. You know, it just depends on what your what situation you're in, how deeply you're going to test or uh, if you're going to start test first or throw in test after or make test part of the second right of the, the, of the thing. Sometimes bugs are cheaper than tests. I think production is the best test suite you can ever get. And sometimes it's actually cheaper to get this bug report from someone, go and fix it, rather than like spend two weeks on writing the test suite and prevent this one bug from happening. I, I do want to um, I do want to put a big warning label on that though. On, on all of this, like the I've seen so many times in my career that like oh we just need this thing for this one trade show, and then like we get we all get back from the trade show and it's like well we already built the product let's just ship it. It's like <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, or, or like, oh, production is the best test suite. Um, and then literally four or five years later, I have this company, NPM8, and some users run into this weird condition, and I'm like, how did this literally ever work? Like, this has been sitting here broken just as a time bomb, like, <laughs> since since NPM was my side project. Like, how did that happen? Um I guess, just, I guess what this all points out is just there's kind of no absolutes, right? Like, yeah. I think, like, 
I, I agree that sometimes uh, production is a great test suite, but I like when I was working on, I worked on NPM's billing system initially, I'm like, crap, if this screws up, like, <laughs> you know, all our money goes to some random other person on Stripe or something. Uh, you know, and, and you're kind of more cautious and you're rating way more tests and you're being way more TDD on that type of code base than, you know, a pretty little graph that shows up on the web page, right? Like, it's just, and, and so it's really a personal experience point of view. But uh, I do like to err on the side of testing, though, just because I do think it provides more guardrails and can help people hit the ground running more in a code base. So I, I kind of want to talk because, I mean, some people are going to come at this and they're going to be like, okay, you know, I've had all these conversations with other experienced people and I feel really good about it. But what about, what about the people who are either beginner coders or they're beginner testers? Because some people, they get in, they work for a company, and the company, you know, hasn't adopted testing yet. And then they work for another company, and they really haven't done much with testing either. And then they go work for a company, and they're like, look, we test everything. Um, or they come into a code base, or they're listening to this, and they're thinking, man, I need to add tests to my code because it's falling down enough to where I think it would start to solve some issues for me. So are there guidelines as far as getting started how much test coverage they should aim for, things like that. This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. I think that, you know, the no absolutes sort of uh, point that Ben made there is, is really important. Um, we sort of do a disservice to new developers by talking about testing as if it's a separate discipline, as if it's this thing that you have to learn about or get into. Um, it's, you know, like I said, like you're, you're writing a function that does a thing. You must be calling that function, even if it's just like from a REPL or a little throwaway test script, right? Like you have to have something that verifies, at least to you, at least manually, that it's doing the right thing, right? That's your test. You, you put some asserts in that and you run that program again. There's, there you go. You're done. What test coverage should you aim for? 100%. But like between 0 and 100, there are a whole lot of numbers. So just aim for a little bit more than you had before. It's fine. Um, I don't think that like it really needs to feel like this whole entire separate discipline, like any more than like, you know, I, well, I should get into functional programming or object oriented programming or programming with, you know, objects or variables or functions. Like yeah, it's, it's all just, you know, little things that you add and, and make your life a little easier. I think to, to Isaac's point, as to it not being something you should think of separately, um, we've not even talking about test coverage yet. I like to, when I'm working on a new code base, think of the testing enough that I can make it not painful to rate tests. So if I'm writing something that's, say, an HTTP server, make sure you have like a nice little test helper in place that gets a little server up and running that you can run some tests against. Or if you're running you know, a testing framework, have a bunch of fixtures that you can test against. Like just figure out a paradigm. Think of your tests like an engineering problem and think of a paradigm that makes them not painful for people to write. And start there because 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 I mean most people don't like writing tests because it's a you have to write 50 lines of boilerplate code and it's a pain in the butt. Um, so think of how to eliminate that 50 lines of boilerplate code before you do anything, 
And then I find if you're just then, if tests are kind of fun to write, you'll, you'll probably land at about 90% test coverage if you're writing quite a few tests. Like, and that's great. Um, you know, 100% being an aspirational goal. I really, really, really like this. Um, <laughs> I really like this kind of approach that testing is not a separate discipline, it's the part of engineering. And we actually do approach testing from this point where we have like we have the regular software design and we have some sophisticated patterns like MVC, MVVM, all that stuff. And when we write tests, when we write tests for our software, we just kind of like come in, write random code, whatever works, we require a function call with arguments, expect something. And it's kind of like it results in a lot of random code all over the place. And I think it's really important to kind of um, give the structure and the design to our testing code so that um, kind of like you know what to do. And I think it kind of repeats the history right now. So when single page applications started being a thing, you remember every project started from the same thing over and over again. How are we going to structure our code? Let's use MVC. All right. And there's like 10 people implement 10 different implementation of the model, a view, a controller, and you have the stuff all over the place. And it's kind of like, and then all those frameworks like Angular, Backbone, Knockout.js came in and they kind of like, guys, we figured it out. Here's the thing. Subclass from our model and you get everything working. So we figured it out so that you don't have to focus on this. You can write code and we can write tests. And I think we can do a better job at testing where you create this kind of like you design your test, you create a utility that uses a specific test pattern, and you share it with other people, where you require the thing, and it gives you everything you need. So you don't have to spend time on trying to organize your code, you spend time on actually testing your application and writing code. And that's what a good test framework does, right? It gives you it gives you those things, so you don't have to reinvent, like, how are we, how are we asserting that two things are equal, right? Like, your test framework should have a, a uh, foo.equals method and like have some patterns for how you structure it. So anybody who's familiar with that test framework can get in and um, and read the test and kind of know what's going on. But I think there's a lot of domain knowledge that uh, you have to have to write tests for a specific thing. If you have a UI application, uh, you probably have to have some kind of library that makes you test this. For example, Enzyme which is a great tool that works specifically um, for UI. One thing I want to hark back to for a second, um, I don't know which of you brought it up, but you, you were talking about code structure with testing. And it's funny, this is the second episode that I've done today where we talked about testing, but the first one was ostensibly about code structure and not testing. But we went to testing pretty early and the reason is, is because the two are very closely linked. And um, a lot of times your code structure and the benefits that you get from it, um, the, the problems that you have there are called out by the test. Because if it's not well structured, it's harder to test. And so I, it's, it's just interesting to me to see that, you know, one can kind of be a surrogate for the other, you know, code readability, code, good code structure, you know, and testability. And, you know, just, just going back around it, it does have its benefits, but it's, it, it is a wider conversation and it's a way of kind of sniff testing your code and having a, a lasting benefit as well, where you can see, okay, this is working out well, this is not working out well. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of got called out by the test. And when I restructured it, I could read it e more easily. 
I could work in it more easily, I could maintain it more easily, uh, and I have this ongoing way of checking the sanity on the code. Yeah, I 100%, 100% agree with that. Like I, I think sometimes, especially if you're writing tests very late on, you'll find out you've made code that's incredibly uh, opaque to, to changing it, how it runs, so that you can write a test around it. And you might find you're you're doing quite a bit of work in the in the application logic just to make it a little easier to test, and it's kind of just a back and forth because um, you're always trying to minimize. You don't want tests to be, you know, if, it's not a pretty code base. Even if the application logic is absolutely beautiful, if your test logic takes someone 45 hours to add one new test to it, that's not a pretty code base. Um, so it's, it's, you need an interplay between both parts of it. Well, and it's the same with your actual application code. If it takes you, I mean, if, if you have well-structured code, it shouldn't take as long to add new features to it. And that's essentially what we're getting paid for. Yeah. I, I mean, this is, this is one of my favorite things about rewriting a, a module. Um, you know, because you, you, the best thing about rewrites is, like, you already know how it's supposed to work. And you probably have some tests already to run against it. And you can, like, be like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... Pay down all of the all of my my karmic mistakes from the past, and make this thing really easy to, to add features to and really easy to work with. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean it's with really good tests, really good code organization. It's it's very easy to zero in on exactly where to where to add a hook or you know make the change. So one other thing that I'm curious about is um, most of us out in the world of programming or writing applications that, you know, are going to run on the web. I know some people use JavaScript to write, you know, mobile or IoT or other things too, but the majority of the listeners of the show, I'm fairly certain, are web developers. Um, and you're talking about building tooling for JavaScript and specifically uh, tooling to help people write better code and write better tests. What's that like as compared to writing front-end code or express code or, you know, some script in Node or something like that? Um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, just full disclaimer that I'm, I was hired for ops at NPM, so I'm going to probably be the least, <laughs> probably be, probably be least front-end uh, focused person. But for, for testing express applications, I, I think what you do end up doing is... Uh, you know, you need to put some upfront work into thinking of how to run a little testing server that you can then test against. Uh, the nice thing about a tool like like NYC, for instance, which does understand subprocesses, is you can actually just you can actually. What I usually do uh, when I'm testing one of the backend like microservices I write is to just stand up a little version of the microservice in my test suite and then just uh, run assertions literally against stuff going through that little microservice. And uh, you can then collect test coverage directly for the, from the code that's running through your routing code and your express application. I find that works really well. I'm, I'm not a, I guess what I'm dancing around is I'm not a huge advocate of like full integration testing of application logic. I'm perfectly fine with running a little testing server. Um, I'll run a little Redis. If it's an application that relies on Redis, I'll have a little Redis application that I keep resetting between tests. Um, I'm not a strong advocate of integration. I'm not a strong ad advocate of full um, unit testing. I like doing kind of partial integration testing when I'm when I'm testing stuff like an express application. I think similarly, which I, I probably Aaron can speak to more because this is built into Jest. Um, you, you know, when you're doing front end testing, you might have 
I guess, like a fake DOM that you're asserting against? Or how, how does that work exactly? I actually never work on UI. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, we've got a bad, bad room full of people here. <laughs> yeah, most of my time I work on tooling and infrastructure. Um, yeah. But, so I, I have um, a, a little bit of experience with this. I'm also not a front-end developer, but um, Chuck, you're... You're 100% right. I can tell you from looking at NPM's data that at least 80% or so of uh, NPM users or JavaScript users are front end. And the the, 20, the other 20% are mostly doing back end for websites. So it's it's all web developers out there in JavaScript. They're, they're almost entirely doing web dev stuff, mostly front end. And the thing that's interesting and where I, I think Node has actually been kind of revolutionary and why it's so popular in this uh, testing and, and, and um, tooling niche is that uh, it gives you a way to take something that's supposed to be a front-end module, um, whether that's like a, a React view or you know an Express app or something like that, and um, run it even though, run it in kind of like a headless mode, right? So run um, run your your React control. Uh, uh, modules against uh, virtual DOM and just see if, see that the, the DOM changes when you fire a certain event are what you expect. And I mean, yeah, you're just munging strings, but you know, you're not actually firing up a web, uh, a web browser and verifying that you have a box this big and this many pixels at this particular location. Um, but you frequently don't need that. And it's really clunky and big and slow anyway. Um, what you want to do is verify that when I click this button, um, you know, this particular property incremented from zero to one or whatever. So you can do that in a headless mode in Node.js using Jest or Tap or, or what have you. Um, two things that I've found to be really, really handy. Um, there is a module called TUP, which um, will like TUP a server for you and then uh, running as a detached child process so you can like spin up a server and tap and then run a bunch of tests against it and then tear it down. Um, and the other thing is we we do kind of an interesting combination of unit tests and integration tests at NPM. Um, there are some services that we have that do almost entirely integration tests but shoot for very high code coverage. And, and others that are a little bit more focused or a little bit more targeted where effectively it's just a unit test. You know, it spins up its own um, Redis instance and then populates it with some big data, runs through all the functions and then tears everything down. Um, and I think it really requires a certain amount of subtlety about like what what level does this part of the application need to be tested at? Does it need an integration test or does it need um, like a focused unit test and then we can just trust that that contract is going to be satisfied and not worry about it. Um, the, big, the big anti-pattern that I've seen, I, I've seen very, very frequently throughout my career is um, uh, what I call unit testing your dependencies. So like I depend on a module that does some particular function and then I expose that through my own API basically just directly. And then I have a whole bunch of tests that verify that it's working. Like I don't need to do that. I just need to verify that my function got called and that it called the thing with the right arguments and that I'm done, right? Like it has its own tests. Um, I see that a lot, especially in uh, uh, more junior web developer code, because it's sort of like um, 
you know, you have a, a CRUD app that you can you can enter some data and then it goes in the database and then you can do a view and get that same data out. Um, it's really tempting to test all of the business logic when you're writing the view layer. And you probably don't need to. Like what you probably need to do is just verify that all the data that I give the views will work and produce the correct view. Um, and then leave it to like the, the model test to actually test that the, the data model is working properly. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I tend to see value in both. So in some instances, it's going to make a ton of sense to test basically from the top down. So you, yeah, you spin up your web server, you host your app, you know, out there somewhere where it can be hit, and then you test it, and then you can see that everything plays nicely together. But in a lot of cases, yeah, you get the fast feedback from the other kind of testing that we're talking about here, where it's, okay, it calls the right things at the right times, it does the right kind of work, and, you know, off we go. And so, yeah, I, I mean, just just thinking about it, you know, anyway, I, I, I kind of put things at two different levels, and I'll run the slow uh, tests, the expensive ones where I'm spinning up the server on, like, continuous integration and stuff, and then all of the other stuff where it's fast and it's quick and it gives me that feedback in less than a minute, that's the stuff that I'll I'll actually run on my server when I'm doing the TDD. And, you, you know, you're absolutely right that if you have those sanity checks, you can get that fast feedback on. I mean, that, that just pays off in dividends because, you know, you write some code, you save the file, and you immediately get the feedback. Nope, nothing broke. Go again. Yeah, tests you don't run are worthless, right? They're they're just taking up space on your hard drive. So if they're too slow to run, if they're too big and funky, like, I mean, okay, maybe it's sort of a, um, a thing that your CI server does, but in order to really develop quickly, you need the you need very fast unit tests for what you're actually doing. Uh, and I would, I would guess would like add to that another issue that I see a lot of times with newer developers, um, you know, there are so many like libraries that we use now that I, maybe this, I don't see this so much in React, but um, definitely like Angularland. Um, there are a lot of like, or definitely like AngularJS, there are a lot of like view helpers. And so you can push a lot of your logic to the template. Uh, and then, you know, the only way to really test that is with an integration test and that's slow. So uh, and sometimes too, it's like you don't, if you don't have integration tests set up, then you're not even testing that. So, and I see, I've seen like newer developers purposely put logic in the view so that they don't have to test it, which is just, it makes me, <laughs> makes me want to cry. But, but yeah, like pushing stuff out, out of the view so that you can unit test it. Yeah. I think like this. This just comes for me, comes back to, you know, treating your your testing as just like another engineering problem, right? Like if your tests are slow, maybe it's worth putting a little bit of time into figuring out how to make them significantly faster. Like like we do a trick at NPM that I think is pretty cool, which is we we use Postgres for a lot of stuff. So we, we, we actually have our tests start a transaction at the start of the test and then fail the transaction at the end of the test so that you just roll back the, the database transaction. So instead, so instead of setting up a ton of fixtures in the database or deleting the whole database, you're relying on this little side effect that's really fast in Postgres, and, you know, it, which is pretty finicky engineering thing to do. But a lot of the time, depending on your domain, there might be a similar finicky engineering thing you can do to make your integration tests run significantly faster. Um, we found it just having to be like a, doesn't have to be a unit test or does it have to be an integration test? Maybe just make your integration tests run significantly faster, depending on the domain. Yeah, that transaction yeah. trick 
feels both clever and gross to me at the same time. Yeah, and that's, that's that. I feel like that's soccer development. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I definitely see that. And one other thing, and this is another thing. I think we've talked about this a little bit, but Amy pointed out, you know, uh, putting stuff into the template and and that being hard to test. If it's hard to test, that's usually a clue that it doesn't belong there. And so, you know, junior developers putting it in there so they don't have to test it, they're actually deliberately sort of sabotaging <laughs> things, right? Because if it's yes, hard to they... <laughs> test, it's in the wrong place. You know, and so in AngularJS or Angular, um, I think React has a similar concept. I'm, I'm learning React now because we're starting a React podcast. But, um, you know, it, it belongs in a service or it belongs in the controller or it belongs in the uh, component or whatever you call it. Um, you know, somewhere where you can actually go and, you know, kind of shake the cage of the logic a little bit. Um, one cool thing, kind of a segue, but um, one cool thing related to test coverage and testing front-end components is something I've been working on lately is uh, Chromium has actually been building a bunch of test coverage support directly into the web browser, which is something I'm very excited about. So you could uh, stand up, you can stand up a headless Chrome browser and run your 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 view components and actually be collecting test coverage uh, directly out of your your V8 JavaScript engine. I think this is going to be, I, I think this is going to be a way that you can have have the the nicety of test coverage in your front end components while still running it, you know, not in a, a fake environment so like like Isaac is saying, but running it in a natural headless browser and, and collecting some of that information. Um, I'm really excited to see over the next year or two where this starts to land and what kind of tooling people are building around this. It's still kind of in its infancy. But I think that's going to be really exciting. You had talked about, um, uh, Ben, you've been working a little bit on getting some, moving the ball forward on um, landing this test coverage stuff in V8 and pulling that into Node. Um, I mentioned before that there were some some awful, brutal hacks in, in NYC to make it uh, work across child process boundaries, and hopefully some of those will be able to be thrown away. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of a neat, for me, it's a really neat vote of confidence that test coverage is a really important tool to software development, that it's actually being built directly into the, the JavaScript engine. And, and, I, and, and I think it will start to allow us to eliminate all the weird hacks we, we've done over the years to, to provide it to people. Um, I hope so, because I hate maintaining. I, every time someone opens an issue up on the spawn wrap library, I just kind of my eyes roll in the back of my head, and I, I just want to run in the other direction. Um, I think I have two tabs open with like a bug that's some weird obscure edge case that gets into like uh, infinite, infinite spawn work bomb situation, and it's just like, yeah, you know, this is this is why you shouldn't do this. Um, you should not monkey patch core internals of Node. It's it just happens to be the only way to make it work, so that's what we did. This brings up kind of another interesting part of coverage, though. Like code coverage need not necessarily be tied directly to the concept of testing. I was reading the blog post that the folks at Google wrote about their uh, their test coverage in Chromium, and on their mind was that you can open up a web page, manually play with a bunch of the components, and then look at the coverage in the browser and see if there's just a bunch of dead code being shipped to the browser. So it's just a kind of a way you can analyze the website you're serving up to someone and see if there's a bunch of uh, vestigial JavaScript kicking around on the page. And, and, and I think this is actually one of the reasons they're building it directly into V8. And it just happens to dovetail and fit well with the testing culture in, in JavaScript around coverage. But he also had mentioned, uh, I think in the 
might have been the same blog post. They talked about um, in addition to finding dead code, you can find hot code. So if you open up a web page with coverage enabled, uh, you know, put it through its paces, and then look at the code base, you can say, well, this this function is getting called like you know eighty thousand times. Um, probably V8 should optimize this pattern um, in some more effective way. Yep. It also tells you if it gets run a lot, though, as the developer, that that's code that you need to pay attention to. Right. And uh, to the point of dead code, um, my intention with this podcasting app, because I went through about three iterations of refactoring stuff, and I know I have dead code. And so my intention is actually to write the higher level feature request uh, type, you know, that hit a path and load the page and do stuff. Uh, run those first. Um, write a bunch of those, and that way, anything that doesn't get run under those, then I can go look and see if it's actually still being used. Anyway, um, we're kind of getting toward the end of our time. Is there any other aspect of this that we really ought to hit on before we go to picks? I think we've covered a pretty good, for myself, I feel like we've covered a pretty good selection. For me, like my, I guess my main point I really want to drill home is that in the open source world, it, it's a, coverage is a great tool for helping people contribute because it eliminates uncertainty in how to contribute. And I'm really excited about the work that's being done in Chromium to make this a, a native JavaScript feature because the current approaches being used are a, a mixed bag of a bunch of taped together and duct taped things. So it'd be nice to make it not the case that that's how things are done. Nice. All right. Well, let's do some picks. For you, the listeners of JavaScript Jabber, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Um, Amy, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I have two of them. So um, as we said at the beginning of the show, I'm just going to have this as my pick again. So it's Valentine's Day, February 13th, just like a day to like celebrate your girlfriends, stuff like that. So uh, I'm going to like shout out to all the awesome female developers I've met just at different conferences and on Twitter, not in real life, but, you know, in real life at conferences. And I don't know, just, just the awesome community of like female developers. And I feel like being around since becoming a developer a couple of years ago and, and being around so many of these women, it's like, it's made me a better person and I've learned so much about them. And, uh, yeah, I'm just like really grateful to be a part of that community. So I mean, Valentine's day <laughs> anyways, um, on a technical note though, my next pick is something called Dnote CLI that I started using this week and it's been kind of like a game changer for me. I wish they had I wish I would have known about this when I was in my boot camp, but basically rather than like for me, I keep all of my, uh, like TIL today, I learned all that kind of stuff in, in, Ever in various Evernote docs. But with the CLI, like you just don't even have to leave the command line. You can just keep all of your notes. Uh, uh, you can like type up 
you know, what you learned and keep manage all your notebooks and stuff like that just from your command line. So I will put a link to that in the show notes and that's it for me. I think you should learn Emacs and org mode. <laughs> all right, AJ, what are your picks? So before I picked the book Mistborn and I said that it was kind of like uh, Star Wars for people that prefer Lord of the Rings because there's like this Obi-Wan type-esque character and but not well now i'm into the third book which is the hero of ages and i have to say that i no longer feel like it's star wars for people that prefer lord of the rings because the next two books just i don't know have a very different feel about them um but so awesome and this guy brandon sanderson is a writing genius in my estimation because the books go together so well. I mean, I guess he must have known exactly what he was doing before he started writing the first one. Cause just everything ties in so well. And it's so, ah, uh, just so many of these kind of philosophical questions that the characters raise. Um, and as they're growing and going through like actual character development, which is rare, um, like they're coming back on, beliefs and thoughts and paradigms that they had from the first book. And then like, they're kind of changing and somewhat on the other side a little bit on some things. So it's, it's just very interesting, uh, story as well as kind of, if you're interested in, in paying any attention to these little philosophical comments that like, and bringing it back into the real world, like the way that things work, it's just cool. Nice. Yeah, I love Brandon Sanderson's books. I think I've read almost all of them. Corey, what are your picks? All right, I have uh, two picks. And my first one is a JavaScript project guideline that I came across by a team called uh, We Are Hive. Uh, and it is a wonderful read. I came across a number of things that uh, I found super useful. Uh, so I will share that link uh, while we're checking out. Then the other thing was uh, a tip that I came across uh, about a week ago that I tweeted out uh, that you can actually install Node as a dependency on your project. Uh, so it ends up sitting in package.json, just like every other package. And once you do that, then when you run npm start or npm test, it will use the version of Node that you have referenced in package.json. So if you run into this problem where some other person is having an issue because they've installed Node 4 and you hadn't really tested on this old version of Node. Well, when you define Node 8, for instance, in package.json, that is the version that it will run. So this was super exciting for me, and apparently lots of people agreed because it, it got uh, lots of attention on Twitter. Uh, so I was, I was very excited to find this. To me, this reduces the need to go use something like Docker for consistency because now we at least have consistency across the version of Node that everybody's using when they run uh, our package. So that is a win. Uh, so I'll share those in the notes. That's all I have. Nice. I'm going to jump in here with a few picks. I've talked about this briefly on some of the other episodes, but by the time this goes live, we should have episodes out for React Roundup and Views on View. So if you are using either of those frameworks, uh, then go check them out. If you're into Angular, we already have a podcast on Angular called Adventures in Angular. So uh, I just want to put those out there because I know that people have been asking about them. And uh, yeah, we're recording the first episodes of both of those shows uh, this Thursday and Friday as we speak. So that's 
that's pretty cool. And then um, I'm also gearing up now to get some stuff together for React Dev Summit. Uh, it'll be free to attend live, and then if you want to get an all-access pass, then you'll get uh, tickets and you know some some deals. I'm working out with some folks. So anyway, just putting all that together, and uh, yeah, it's all stuff that I'm working on, but it's all stuff that I hope you all enjoy. So I'll I'll just go ahead and uh, pick that. Uh, ben, what are your picks? Um, so on February 23rd, I'm mentoring at this really cool thing that the University of Illinois Urbana is doing called Hack Illinois, where it's kind of like those hackathon weekends where people you know have too much Red Bull and stay up all weekend, but they're actually teaching the students about open source and they're bringing in open source maintainers and to help the students land their first open source pull requests. I think it's super cool. And, you know, I think it's a neat way for a hackathon to teach people about the industry. Um, the other thing I'd like to shout out is uh, related to test coverage. I have this little project at, uh, on GitHub called C8. If you go to bco slash C8, it's uh, trying to bridge the native test coverage stuff happening in Chromium to so you can run it inside Node. Really new project. I would love help. Um, it will accept pull requests from everyone. Just come check it out and help make the future of test coverage in Node. That's my two. All right. Aaron, what are your picks? Um, probably a couple of months ago, I started writing uh, some code in this language, in this new language called Reason. And uh, that was a really, really, really good experience. It's um, not that much related to testing, but it doesn't force strong types, which is, uh, it just eliminates all kind of, the whole class of bugs like undefined is not a function or it cannot access property, something on undefined. Um, and I think it was a really nice experience where you write a lot of safe code that runs well, sometimes like 10 or even 100 times faster than Node.js. So I think that would be my pick. All right, Isaac, what are your picks? I have, uh, I have three picks today um, in three different areas. The first is... Um, we didn't touch on this, but there's a, there's a collection of modules called the TAP 100. Um, there are not 100 of them yet, but they're all of the modules that um, that run node TAP with the dash dash 100 flag. So they have they enforce 100% coverage of all uh, lines, branches, statements, and functions. Um, if you if you do this, then you'll find out why I like it so much, and you should send me a pull request to add your add your module to that list. The second pick, oh, and you can see that list at uh, node-tap.org slash 100. The second pick is an app called uh, Krypton by Cryptco. I really, really dig this thing. It, um, it does true two-factor auth uh, for SSH and PGP code signing. So basically, your, your private key only lives on your phone, and then every time you SSH into GitHub or, or whatever, um, you have to you get a push notification and you have to allow it. So if somebody steals your computer or your credentials and starts trying to push code up to GitHub, um, they won't be able to do it. Uh, it also uh, will sign uh, uh, all of your commits that you uh, that you commit to get, so that you have to allow those. If if there's some malware on your computer that's trying to like sneak code in by a, by a, some back door, then You'll, you'll know because your phone will start vibrating. Um, the, uh, the third thing is a podcast that just started called Friendly Fire. And this um, my, my appreciation for this 
podcast in case there was any doubt that I'm swiftly becoming a middle-aged dad. It is a, um, it's a podcast where, uh, three nerds, two movie nerds and one history nerd, uh, get together and watch a war movie and then talk about it. Um, it's, uh, John Roderick, Adam Pranica and Benjamin R. Harrison. And it's, really, really good if that sounds like something you might be into. And if it's not something you might be into, I don't blame you. You're probably not a middle-aged dad. <laughs> now, when you say a war movie, is that like uh, an actual historical film or just any movie that has battles in it? Uh, so they've done so far, it, it's a movie a movie about war. So Saving Private Ryan, It Runs Silent, Run Deep, um, Flying Leatherneck, Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World, like Okay. Movies, and they, they, they break down the, uh, the historical implications both of you know the history that the movie is showing as well as the time the movie was made and, and the cultural context at that time. And it's, it's just a really interesting uh, exploration of our culture's relationship with violence, uh, state violence through the, the medium of movies. That sounds fascinating to me. I must be a middle-aged dad. All right. Well, uh, thank you, all three of you, for coming and sharing your thoughts on this. It's it's fun to talk about some of these conceptual things that are part of code, but you know aren't necessarily like specific technologies. And hopefully, we inspired some folks to go uh, do a little bit better on their testing and uh, cover their code. We'll wrap this one up, and we'll catch everyone next week. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.